0: the September 9th edition of the Global News Review. I'm Patrick Ryan, President of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Today, Ambassador Dick Bowers, Dr. Breck Walker, and I will present the top items in global current events and provide analysis and commentary and take your questions. Uh, Before we start, I just wanted to mention a couple of uh, program items. Last night, we had a terrific interview with uh, Dr. Tom Schwartz about his new book on uh, Henry Kissinger, uh, we have a copy right here. And I will also mention that we'd like to have uh, new, uh, new members join. So this week and this week only, anyone who joins the World Affairs Council or renews their membership or makes a donation of $100, we will put your name in the, in the hat for a drawing of a copy of this uh, terrific book by Dr. Tom Schwartz. And you can also find the conversation that we had with uh, Dr. Schwartz on our youtube com TNWAC uh, channel. Uh, again, I uh, encourage people to become members of the World Affairs Council. Uh, that's how we uh, get to do the things that we do for you here uh, on the, uh, the Global News Review and other programs. Uh, let me mention also that uh, tomorrow we begin our Election 2020 uh, project uh, examining critical global issues to inform uh, the voters before you go to the polls tomorrow the uh, program is China uh, conflict and confrontation or cooperation uh, dr. Susan Haynes uh, professor Haynes uh, member of our board uh, will be hosting a panel of five distinguished uh, speakers uh, to cover everything you need to know about the China and China US relations uh, that starts at 5:30 p.m. so register now Uh, to get in on that program. You can see on the slide there the other issues we're covering the globe looking at the important issues for the United States in uh, in coming uh, months as we look to uh, January and whatever administration is uh, taking off from that point. Uh, We also have on October 22nd a debate watch party. That's the debate at Belmont University. Uh, Belmont is our partner and uh, we're working with them on this uh, project Election 2020, so we'll be hosting a debate watch party. Uh, look uh, for that, and then on November 3rd, we will have a uh, election watch party. But uh, in between uh, some terrific programs, we have uh, really an outstanding lineup of uh, uh, distinguished people from around the, the country um, and around the world. We have uh, some speakers from the Middle East. Uh, so take a look at the calendar. That's at tnwac.org/calendar. Uh, and uh, you can uh, get in on on, uh, those programs. Um, Gentlemen, uh, glad to see you all. Breck, welcome back from your week on the road.
1: Great to be back, thanks.
0: And uh, Dick, if if you want to start us off with our uh, topics today.
2: Well, we've got three topics, Pat. Uh, One is going to be talking a little bit about the United Nations General Assembly and maybe a little background on the UN in general. And then we're going to go to a very deep dive into a report on China's military power and what is going on and why is it a concern concerns the United States. And finally, Brexit is back. You've got ad infinitum on your slide. I would say Brexit ad nauseum is probably more <laughs> appropriate. It just keeps coming back at us. So those are our three topics, Patrick and Breck. Let's go.
1: So uh, I guess I'm responsible for the quiz today, and I want to remind everybody that there's a weekly quiz on the TenWAC website that provides a monthly prize uh, for uh, members of TenWAC, so please uh, access that if you are interested. But today's question on the program is, eight people have been sentenced in Saudi Arabia in connection with the murder of this journalist, a Saudi citizen who was living and working in self-imposed exile in the United States. And the possible answers are A, Mohammed, excuse me, Mohammed bin Salman, Jamal, B is Jamal Khashoggi, C is Abdullah Rabia, and D is Hamad al-Sheikh. So we'll have the answer for you at the end of the program. All right, well, off to uh,
0: topic one, the, uh, the UN General Assembly. Uh, they are uh, about to uh, open their session. Dick, do you want to lead us off on, on
2: Well, that? you know, as, as I think we all know, out of the ashes of the Second World War, the United Nations was created, and it was out in San Francisco in 1945. And basically, nations chose cooperation over conflict. And today, it seems to me that this global cooperation is more important than ever, yet more at risk than when the UN was created some 75 years ago. My view is that we really have no choice but to work together in order to defeat COVID-19, strengthen health systems, avert climate catastrophe, drive out poverty and inequality, and ensure that technology benefits everybody. And in the bottom line, make sure we preserve global peace and security. Um, Just when we need it the most, our potential to work together feels, to me, more vulnerable than ever. The United States used to lead all these efforts and today we have given up voluntarily that leadership role. So let's have a little bit of history here. Uh, First session of the UNGA was convened on 10th of January, 1946 in the Methodist Central Hall in London and included representatives of 51 nations. The next few annual sessions were held in different cities number two in New York City, number three in Paris, and then it moved to its permanent headquarters at the start of its seventh regular annual session in 1952. In December 1988, in order to hear Yasser Arafat, the head of the Palestinian uh, organization, the General Assembly organized its 29th session at the Palace of Nations in Geneva, Switzerland. Today, there are 193 members of the United Nations and in the General Assembly within, in addition, there are two observer states, the Holy See, the Vatican, and Palestine. So what are the kind of major topics that the UNGA will be dealing with this session, the 75th year of its founding? I think number one is COVID-19 and world leaders have been asked to focus speeches on multilateralism in the context of COVID-19 and the impact on the, on the, of the pandemic. Uh, experts and are going to be talking about how we should be doing things and what we did or didn't do right. And I think there will be a lot of discussions on mobilizing greater resources to tackle the virus in countries with especially marginalized and vulnerable communities and there will be a lot of calls for equitable access to vaccines, tests, and treatments. So number two, sustainable development goals. The United Nations has been in the sustainable development business for a number of years, but the pandemic has kinda taken some of the air out of the balloon. There are 17 of these goals, which include such things as no poverty, zero hunger, Good health and well being, quality education, gender equality, clean water, and on it goes. And major progress has been made in those goals in the past years, but it seems to be slowing down a little bit. So they will be focused in the General Assembly on these uh, goals and the greater involvement and engagement across countries, communities, and sectors will be pushed. Third is uh, climate energy. The economies are taking a hit but it's not doing much in terms of long-term cleanliness in the atmosphere. Global greenhouse gas levels are higher than ever and while major international climate summits have been postponed because of the pandemic, the climate emergency will still be a major topic. Number four, I think the UNGA will be tackling inequality. Uh, the pandemic's greatest impact is on those already marginalized, among them people of color, the poor, and girls and women. And the UNGA will take stock of slow progress on gender equality and I think come up and demand greater, greater impetus in this area. And finally, there'll be quite a think a bit of celebration about the UN being its, its 75th anniversary, and there'll be a reflection about how, how we're doing, where we came from, where we're going, and those kinds of things. So the United Nations is, uh, or the United States, I'm sorry, is one of the UN's most important stakeholders. The UN was created at the initiative of the US after World War II, and Washington provides the largest financial contribution to the U.N.'s overall budget. The U.S. hosts the U.N. headquarters in New York. The U.N. Security Council sits at the apex of the 75-year-old rules-based international order, heavily devised, underwritten, and anchored by the United States. So a final important question for other UN members is whether this shift in US global outlook under the Trump administration marks a four-year aberration from or a new normal for US foreign policy. And I think the outcome of the 2020 presidential election will be fundamental in determining this. So look for a very interesting UNGA, guys.
0: And Dick, that, that quotation was from uh, an item written by David uh, Winneray of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And I think it's probably largely uh, taken from the, uh, the speech that President Trump gave at the opening of the uh, UN General Assembly in which uh, he came out and said that he was not interested in being a globalist, that he was a nationalist, uh, et cetera uh so it kind of set the tone for the current administration's relationship with the united uh, nations and uh, international organizations and i think um, this year with the united states withdrawing from the world health organization uh that will probably not go unnoticed in in the uh speeches and and other presentations at this uh this upcoming opening of uh, of the general assembly
2: i think you're absolutely right i mean the un Basically, the bodies of the UN, they're, they're the General Assembly, and then there's the Secretariat, which elects the Secretary General, and basically that's the administrative wing to organize and have places to meet and publish documents and things of that sort. The International Court of Justice, which is in The Hague, uh, and those organizations and, and the, also- And the Security Council. Well, the Security Council, yeah, I guess I should mention that one, right? Since it's the underpinnings of the U.S. and four other countries have veto power in the Security Council, which has 15 members, and the other guys are elected uh, from different parts around the world. So the specialized agencies are things like uh, the World Health Organization and International Monetary Fund. Uh, these are things that are vital for the functioning of the world as it, as we know it. So,
0: right, the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency, which is monitoring, right, uh, the the uh, JCPOA, the nuclear deal with Iran, and and other nuclear activities around the world. Um, yeah, you're right. The UN. Uh, we don't see a lot of what uh, what they're doing around the world because they're, they're involved in so many things. Uh, well, the World Health or students, Organization, uh, I
2: think, is basically the CDC for, you know, more than half the countries around the world who don't have right. the capacity that we have for that kind of medical intervention. So. Hey, world
1: ben, Food Program, just...
0: UNESCO, uh, UNICEF.
2: Yep.
1: Hey, Pat, I want to jump in just for a second and, and brag on the UN uh, with some specifics, if that's okay, because I think there are lots of folks in the United States and me from time to time that views the UN as expensive, corrupt, mad, uh bureaucratic, inefficient, overly political, and often ineffective. But uh, the that's, UN That's, a good, that's uh, a good
0: way to start out with your, your phrase,
1: <laughs> uh, Rick. <laughs> but, but the UN through its uh, history, I was uh, doing a little bit of research on this. Uh, it, its programs or its staff have won 12 Nobel Peace Prizes. Uh, and currently they are supervising, I believe, peacekeeping forces in 14 areas of the world uh, under conflict. As Dick was mentioning in the healthcare area, the UN vaccinates 58% of the world's children uh, in a typical year and has made great strides in its contributions towards reducing child mortality through providing cleaner water, better sanitation, better nutrition, those kinds of things. And it played a huge role in wiping out polio and smallpox and also responding to the HIV uh, AIDS crisis, uh, which we st- still with us today. Uh, and as Dick mentioned, uh, they've played a leading role often in halting the spread of uh, epide- uh, epidemics. And they've been a huge advocate uh, for human rights uh, with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that came out early in its history and that they've used to support children's rights and migrant rights and women's rights. And uh, and they've been a very loud and vocal and persuasive advocate in those areas, I think. And people complain about uh, how expensive it is from the U.S. perspective because we, I think, provide about 20 percent of the U.N. budget, which is I call is about $10 million, which just in perspective, is about the cost of what we pay for the US Coast Guard uh, in an annual year. So it, uh, uh, despite the uh, maddening uh, episodes from time to time, uh, it, it it, seems to me at least that we're getting a lot of a bang for our buck, so to speak. And i end with a quote from uh, former Secretary General uh, uh, Dag Hammarskjöld, if I'm pronouncing that right, Dick. His quote was, the UN was not created to take mankind to heaven, but to save humanity from hell. And I, I like that quote. I think that sums it up pretty well. That's well, good.
0: Good yeah, review. There, there are a tremendous number of things. You know, Just look at the World Food Program. When there's a famine in the Horn of Africa or, or somewhere else in the world, uh, we see these awful images on, on TV. But the, the people who are uh, landing in the C-130s and, and providing uh, Nutrition for people who are about uh, at the end end of their their well being, uh, they step in the the uh, refugees, the uh, peepers, uh, you know the the if you look at the Gaza Strip, the UN is in there making sure that the Palestinians who are locked into that enclave are are taken care of. So I, I agree with uh, with Breck. There's a tremendous amount going on at uh, at the UN. And I think the, uh, the, uh, the concern that people have about the United Nations is, is politics. Uh, the Security Council sometimes doesn't get things done because there's the veto power of the, uh, the five permanent members, the United States, China, Russia, uh, France, and Great Britain. So if there's a, a contentious issue that uh, you know, we're at odds with China over, they could veto or we could veto. Um, frequently, the United States has used the veto to protect Israel from uh, resolutions uh, that would uh, go against uh, their interests. So uh, I, I think the politics is 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 baked into the formula of the Security Council and the uh, the vetoes and and uh, if you look at the composition of the General Assembly, uh, their their resolutions are are uh, uh, not as uh, binding or as important as the Security Council. So it's uh, politics, it's global politics. But hey,
2: Pat, um, yeah, can you put that slide up again? You head up about the 193 members and, and breaking them into various regional blocks. Sure. Because I have a question. There's one one little black dot down there, if I remember the slide correctly, where it said it says no group. Who is that? Um, <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> So basically, it's an outlier that's not part of any of the uh, the group of African states or Asia Pacific states or East uh, European states. Or I would Western think there's
0: that's a good question, Dick. I'll have to uh, go back in and uh, do some more research there. Um, anyway. I, I would think there'd be more than uh, you know. That might be the United States or Canada or or uh, somebody in, uh-huh. in the non. Well, there are
2: there are some the non, areas non-aligned movement. Yeah, some that, for example, Taiwan. Taiwan is considered by China to be an integral part of China and therefore is not an independent country and therefore doesn't belong in the United Nations. Greenland has its own parliament, but it's really got a connection to Denmark. So it's not in the United Nations. Same with Bermuda. Well, Bermuda is a crown colony. There are a lot of them left over from the vestiges of the British Empire kind of thing. Yeah, so. Aren't
0: we buying Greenland? Pardon? <laughs> aren't we buying Greenland?
2: Yeah, well, I think it'd be a good investment, but uh, I don't know. The water is going to be going away because the icebergs are melting, right? So we'll see what happens. Yeah,
0: I, I think I think Mr. Trump wanted to uh, to buy Greenland from Mark a little while back, but I don't think it went over. I don't think very the Danes long.
2: are interested in selling.
0: Probably not. All right, let's uh, let's move on. We've uh, we, we've given our two cents on, on the United Nations. And uh, as as a native New Yorker, um, I can tell you that when the United Nations General Assembly opens uh, Manhattan traffic, which is normally horrible uh, becomes just uh, you know maybe dog Hammer was right it's it's on, on its way to, to hell um, it, it gets pretty bad in Manhattan with with all the VIPs showing up okay uh, on to uh, to China and the uh, uh, the release of a report uh, by uh, the Pentagon. And this is an annual report that's due to uh, Congress uh, called the Military and Security Developments Involving the People's Republic of China, annual report to Congress. And this is produced by the Defense Department. And I would commend it to your uh, reading, at least to your browsing. Um, Take a look at the, you you can just Google China military power and it'll be the, the first thing that comes up. And, and this document is uh, kind of a derivative of what the Pentagon did back during the Cold War uh, regarding uh, the Soviet Union. In the uh, Reagan administration, you can see Mr. Reagan there with the Secretary of Defense, Caspar Weinberger. Uh, they produced this Soviet military power uh, book every year and it was uh, spread around the media and the public and um, you could you could find it in military bases and, and all over the place they, they really, uh, put a lot into showing how powerful the Soviet military was. And um, with the demise of the Soviet Union, this, this went away. And then a few years ago, uh, the Pentagon decided to uh, produce a report on China. And, and this is actually mandated by Congress that every year the Pentagon produced this report. So what, they, uh, what they've done is put together uh, this uh, report on the Internet. And uh, you can um, probably also imagine that there are hard copies being shared around Capitol Hill and el- elsewhere to show the, uh, the growing um, power of the People's Liberation Army. And, you know, we, we um, uh, would be remiss in not mentioning that uh, China's uh, strategic power is not just invested in its military, but in its uh, economic uh, outreach as well. You know, we've, we've talked here about the Belt and Road Initiative and Chinese uh, commercial expansion and uh, uh, building uh, networks and infrastructure across Central Asia and into Africa and Europe, uh, even an Arctic route of, uh, of the Belt and Road. But uh, this, uh, this publication looks specifically at their, uh, their military systems, uh, expansion of their uh, uh, nuclear arsenal, the conventional forces uh, and so forth. So uh, take a look at it and in the overview, there's some useful um, uh, sections on what the uh, the strategy of the People's Republic of China is regarding their, their military strength. And uh, interestingly, there's a talk about the, uh, the national objective of uh, the great re- rejuvenation of the Chinese nation by the year 2049. And uh, you know you can you can trace over the last couple of years, uh, China has exerted its military power, uh, especially in the in the maritime realm, in um, in the Western Pacific, uh, especially the South China Sea, and the uh, East China Sea, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about that here in a second. But the uh, the report is uh, is a useful guide to uh, the Chinese. Uh, communist parties look at uh, foreign policy, the national objectives, uh, what they intend to do with the armed forces. Um, and the Pentagon position is that uh, as of uh, about 2019, uh, the PRC recognized its armed forces should be taking a more active role. And uh, we can see that in the uh, construction of new ships, um, the uh, the outpost in the South China Sea and so forth. Uh, here you can see a couple of areas where China has uh, rubbed up against its neighbors in, uh, in western China along the, the border with India. And recently we've seen conflicts back and forth. And just, just this weekend, uh, there was uh, uh, shooting going on back and forth across uh, the border. Um, a few weeks ago, there was a, a major clash between China and India over that, uh, that section of their border. So they have uh, territorial disputes with India. They have territorial disputes in the South China Sea. And we've talked about the the nine dash line in the South China Sea, which is the Chinese claim to uh, territorial sovereignty over a number of islands, uh, well down into the South China Sea, uh, adjacent to places like Vietnam and and the Philippines. And then in the East China Sea, there's a a conflict with uh, uh, Japan over the Senkaku Islands, which uh, the Japanese administer, but it's uh, claimed jointly by China and uh, uh, and Japan. Interestingly, a couple of years ago, the United States made it clear that the US-Japan Defense Agreement included uh, protection of the claim of Japan on the Senkaku Islands. So that's, that's one more trigger mm-hmm. in the uh, Western Pacific. Uh, being a Navy guy, I, I grabbed a copy of this major naval units uh, chart to just to give you an idea of what the uh, the Chinese uh, Navy, it's uh, actually called the PLAN, the People's Liberation Army Navy. Dick, uh, that, that probably makes it interesting on the uh, you know, Army Navy day.
2: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think the Chinese sailors know other than the Navy. I don't think there's any confusion with the grunts, so to speak, right?
0: Yeah, so you can see uh, the, the major uh, bases uh, along China's uh, eastern coast and uh, some of the, uh, the units that, that are based uh, in that area. And uh, finally, we'll take a look at uh, this slide, which shows the ranges of uh, Chinese uh, strategic weapon systems and the numbers of launchers and missiles they have of uh, the various uh, weapon systems. And just so you, you might not uh, discern what's going on with that chart on the left, uh, North America is at the top of the green, upside down, but to uh, show the, uh, the uh, range rings of the Chinese strategic weapon systems and 1300 kilometers uh, covers uh, the entire United States, uh, with the exception of Florida. So Florida, you're, you're, uh, you're okay there, uh, no, no worries. Uh, but uh, you can see the number of uh, various uh, strategic forces And also, uh, I thought it was important to note that uh, the Chinese uh, defense budget, uh, especially in the last 10 years, uh, has grown continuously uh, despite a decline in the the, uh, GDP um, growth for China, which uh, had been for uh, many years in in the nine to 10% range and has uh, declined slightly. I think most countries uh, wouldn't mind having a a 6% GDP growth uh, but for China, that uh, indicates uh, uh, a decline. So they're, they're going to have to address their economic issues. And um, uh, meanwhile, they're continuing to uh, invest in their uh, their military. As you can see, in 2019, the investment was uh, approximately $170 uh, billion dollars adjusted for inflation. And that compares to uh, over $700 billion uh, for the United States military. But we... Uh, operate a worldwide uh, military, not just in the Western Pacific.
2: I had a Navy question for you. Yes, sir. So so I I see they've got GLICAMs, right, ground launch uh, missiles. missiles. Do they have submarine-launch ballistic missiles?
0: Yes, they do. Uh, They have uh, several um, SSBNs, the uh, ballistic missile submarines that are equipped with uh, long-range intercontinental ballistic missiles, SLBMs. So uh, they're, they're uh, and, and that's uh, like our ballistic missile submarine force, a survivable leg of their triad. They have land-based, air-based and uh, sea-based uh, strategic weapon systems.
1: Okay. Hey Pat, I have, a, I have a military question for you if you don't mind with a, with a little bit of a prelude. When I read through this document, it reminded me a little bit of the old NSC uh, 68, national security policy document uh, authored mostly by George Kennan, uh, uh, written back in 1950 and delivered to President Truman that was uh, an overview of what the DOD and the State Department thought were Soviet intentions going forward, Soviet uh, capabilities and intentions, and those intentions were basically argued to be uh, essentially world domination. And. That report sort of sat on the shelf, and I don't think had much impact, until the Korean War broke out uh, and where North Korea invaded South Korea with the OK and the support of uh, the Soviet Union, as well as uh, the People's Republic. And then that report was dragged off the shelf and became uh, arguably the the game plan for the militarization of the Cold War. So my question right. is, is this document kind of like that? And what will be the influence of this document in, in the coming uh, three, four, five years?
0: Uh, I, I don't think this is uh, a, a binding, uh, th- this is informational rather than a policy document. Uh, although there are policy implications of some of the statements being made here. Um, and you know people are drawing the conclusion that we're now in a new cold war with China. Uh, we're in a, a confrontational mode but I don't think uh, the analogy with the Cold War or NSC 68 or the domino theory or or those constructs uh, that uh, some of us grew up with apply here. Uh, China's uh, economic power probably is the most significant uh, soft power element that uh, they have uh, to to offer. A lot of their military expansion uh, in the, the maritime realm is to uh, to counter what they see as uh, the threat to, uh, to China posed by the United States uh, Seventh Fleet in the Western Pacific. And they want to uh, reinforce their claim in the uh, Spratlys and the Paracels and the rest of the South China Sea. Uh, they've militarized those islands. But, but getting back to uh, the, the China military power document, I think it's, it's mostly a, a glossy presentation by Uh, by the Pentagon. And and there are policy implications. Uh, Clearly, the United States in this administration has called out China uh, regularly. I I think uh, at least once a week, Secretary Pompeo has a statement um, putting Chinese officials on a sanctions list or uh, condemning uh, this or that activity and referring not to China, but to the uh, Chinese Communist Party. So um, this is just one more construct within the the government's uh, offering of of documents uh, justifying uh, US actions uh, vis-a-vis China. But uh, in terms of uh, uh, a National Security Council uh, policy document, uh, I think that's, that's probably a separate realm.
2: You know, I found it interesting when, you know, you you just read the executive summary if you, you know, you can get through that. That's only about 10 pages or so long. But I mean, the report itself is voluminous. Um, But one of the things, for example, that I was struck by is that China's on the move and they are doing what they need to do in terms of modernizing their navy, which basically in the past, it was just a coastal defense navy. And now it is starting to become a blue water navy that can project power around the world. And secondly, they started, China has always been very homebound. China never really tried to establish strategic bases. But now they've got them, and they've got current base in Djibouti in the Middle East, right, which helps uh, protect right. their s- Silk Road initiatives and things of that sort. So it's gonna be a different world out there. And, and I think countries are having to make a deal as China comes in and says, well, we'd like to put a, a little presence here in Myanmar or other places. So challenges. Yeah,
0: you're right. The, they, they do have bases uh, and access uh, strung across the Indian Ocean uh, and as I mentioned, the Belt and Road Initiative, they're, they're looking at uh, expanding their trading routes to even the, uh, the Arctic as, as the Arctic is opened up for for shipping and uh, they've deployed their, their military units uh, to the far seas. It is it is now becoming a blue water Navy. Makes it interesting for US planners to uh, figure out what the current budget constraints and force constraints um, uh, and how the, the, the correlation of forces, the, the threat mix.
2: Well, I mean, just a, one, uh, one little factoid that I, I've gleaned out of this thing. I mean, uh, uh, shipbuilding. China, is, is a, the PRC, has the largest navy in the world now. Um, 350 ships and submarines, according to this report, including 130 major surface combatants. 350 versus the United States, 293. So there's a misbalance now. I mean, we've, we've got, I think you as a Navy guy would talk about your aircraft carriers being, you know, game changers as well as a submarine force. But, but China's moving. Sure. Yep. Okay.
0: Any more on the China military power? Again, uh, take a look at the, that document. Uh, just uh, Google China military power. It's a Pentagon report. Uh, as uh, Dick mentioned, uh, at least go through the, uh, the executive summary, the overview. Uh, you'll become very uh, familiar with what's going on in the Western Pacific and what the uh, United States uh, is looking at in terms of the uh, position of, of China militarily. Um, not the whole story. Uh, the economic power of China, again, is uh, important, but uh, this uh, this definitely is a piece of the puzzle. Brexit, ad uh, ad nauseum, what What's your take? Ad nauseum or ad infinitum? Or?
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. As uh, uh, Pat and Dick, I think that the Brexit story is one of one uh, foreign policy story that uh, that where nothing ever happens. It seems like, and nothing ever ends. But. Uh, Uh, Just to (laughs) recap where we are today, uh, the UK left the EU in in an official sense in January 2020, it Brexited. And uh, from that point to the end of this year, there is a transition period where the UK basically abides by most EU rules, while the UK and the EU... Uh, try and negotiate an exit agreement that will cover relations going forward. And mostly that uh, those negotiations are about trade going forward because the EU, of course, is a free trade area. And if the uh, UK or now that the UK has exited, it needs to sit down with the EU and decide how they're going to have economic relations uh, together. Now, if an agreement is not reached, uh, then we have what's Uh, called uh, probably a hard Brexit. Uh, And that means on January 1st, 2021, if there's not an agreement between the EU and the UK, probably World Trade Organization rules would would apply, the WTO. And uh, those rules do allow for certain, under certain conditions, certain restraints on trade, including tariffs. And certainly many commentators out there think that a hard Brexit is the uh, worst outcome for the UK in terms of the economic damage that uh, that, that might do. Now negotiations, as this is what's been in the paper in the last uh, week or two, negotiations do not appear to be going so well. Uh, from the very beginning, Uh, I guess, four years ago. Uh, Brinkmanship has been a part of Brexit talks from the very beginning. And uh, in the last few days, there's been a pledge from the Prime Minister, the uh, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, to walk away from talks if a deal isn't done by October the 15th. And the UK's chief negotiator said uh, very uh, sincerely, I think, that Britain Britain would be happy to exit uh, without a deal. So the main areas of contention right this second seem to be three. Uh, One is fishing rights in UK waters. Uh, A second is the question of government subsidies to favored industries, because if the UK and the EU are going to have relatively free trade with one another, the EU does not want the UK to be able to give subsidies to favored industries that would give them a competitive advantage in their relationship with the EU. So that's an issue. And then the third issue is this one that gets the most of the publicity, which is uh, what is gonna happen to the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. When the uh, that border right now is a border in a geographic name only. You can freely drive, walk, uh, run across that border without being stopped. And that was very much a part of the uh, peace understandings and discussions that took place, that there wouldn't be a hard border there, that you wouldn't have to go through customs, that goods wouldn't have to uh, stop and be checked and possibly taxed and so forth. And uh, that's the way it has been with the UK as part of the EU. And of course the Republic of Ireland is staying with the EU and the UK now has exited. So the question becomes whether or not uh, uh, that kind of free flowing border will continue. Now Boris Johnson and the EU agreed back last October that that would continue to be a free border and that to the extent that there are customs checks and uh, inspection of goods and so forth that that would take place in the ports of uh, Northern Ireland and the Northern Ireland government would agree that that uh, any good goods produced in Northern Ireland that were going to be for export that it would comply with uh, with uh, EU rules in that regard so it was kind of a, a fix so to speak to keep things as they are at the border uh, but in the last couple of days there has been rumors in the newspapers that the UK is gonna back away from that and uh, might be wanting to have some sort of border checks. And that would create uh, a huge confrontation, I think, between the EU, the UK, and, uh, well, in Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. So more to come, more to come on that. Um, I might just add, if it's okay, briefly, uh, my thoughts on the question of how big a disaster is Brexit uh, from the UK perspective and, and a little historical uh, context may be helpful here. I mean the story of Europe since World War II has generally been one of economic and political uh, uh, integration that uh, the EU's early, earliest beginnings I think date back to uh, and maybe before this but date back to at least 1952 when six countries, France, West Germany, Belgium, Italy, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands, uh, established a free trade area for a few key resources, but in particular, coal, steel, and iron ore in an effort to jumpstart economic growth in the region. And then that was expanded, that for that narrow free trade area was expanded to uh, 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 a free trade area encompassing almost all economic activity, And that block, that happened in 1957, and that block was called the European Economic Community or the EEC. And that's no tariffs or other barriers to the free flow of goods. And that began to attract other European uh, nations to the point where then in 1993, the EEC, the Maastricht Treaty was signed. uh, And the EEC became what's called today the European Union. And uh, that treaty was a big move to try and integrate Europe's nations, those who are part of the EU, beyond just economics, to uh, integrate them politically as well, where Europe would all of a sudden become more like the United States of Europe and would have a uh, united foreign policy, common citizenship rights, a common currency, uh, a common uh, perspective on immigration, uh, and so forth. Now today, of the 51 countries in Europe, 28 belong to the EU. And the EU together has a population of something north of 500 million inhabitants, taking all the member countries together, which is the third largest population in the world after China uh, and India. And I think it's fair to say the core beliefs of the EU, why it's there, is that uh, the belief is that countries that trade together, that have strong economic relations, don't go to war against each other. And also that a united Europe is better able to protect its interest globally than uh, a divided Europe. And so the cost of this though, is to achieve this, each European country had to give up a little bit, uh, and the big question is what's a little bit, but a little bit of their national sovereignty, over policy areas. And those areas have tended to have evolved over time and tended to uh, increase over time. And even throughout Europe, there's a continuing debate over what the EU should be when it grows up, so to speak. Should it be mostly an economic pact? And we've gone way beyond that at this point. Should it be like the United States of Europe? Or should it be something uh, in between? Now, the UK brexiting has been really highly controversial and the vast majority, at least as I see it, the vast majority of commentators who are not politicians have suggested that Brexit is very bad for the UK, that uh, the vast majority of UK business leaders and particularly large company business leaders, for example, 85% or more uh, wanted to stay in the EU. But, and it's been portrayed in the press, Brexit, as a politically motivated sort of harebrained scheme driven by anti-immigration uh, zealots. And so there was this internal internal British politics led to a referendum in 2016. The turnout for the referendum was a high uh, percentage north of 70 percent and the referendum passed by the referendum to leave the EU passed narrowly 52 percent to 48 percent and so Brexit began and at the end of this year uh, Brexit will be uh, in every respect uh, a reality it sounds like one way or the other. But uh, to try and just be a little con- contrary here and, and, and solicit Pat and Dick's comments, uh, I think that there are some reasonable arguments that can be made in support of Brexit from a UK perspective. And I just wanted to lay out two or three of those and, and get reaction if I could. Certainly sovereignty is the heart of the issue from the UK perspective where the EU has authority, and that's in a lot of business regulation and agricultural policy and copyright patent law and immigration. In the areas where the EU has authority, EU rules override national laws. Now, uh, the hot button area in that sovereignty issue was certainly immigration, that pro-Brexiters in the UK want to control their own borders. They want their democracy to decide what the border rules are. And they argue that immigration under the EU has hurt domestic UK workers and has diminished national security. Uh, in a similar sovereignty issue, uh, right now the UK government cannot uh, uh, follow its preferred industrial policy. You know, China supports certain industries and certain companies because it wants to be industry leaders in those uh, areas, and they think that's going to benefit China long term. Uh, the, under the under EU rules, individual European countries cannot do that. Uh, so UK can't subsidize without EU approval. Industry is important that it thinks for its own national security, for example. Um, now, giving up this kind of sovereignty uh, that might be a good thing if there's considerable economic benefit to the UK. But it's arguable how much economic benefit uh, there is that british businesses are now saddled with these rules and regulations uh, that are not approved by the british and that's in the context of the vast majority of small and medium sized firms in britain do not trade with europe so they're following eu rules even though they have they don't trade they don't export uh, uh, any goods and further the eu is a slow growing market uh, i don't think anybody thinks that the eu market as a whole is going to grow more than say 2% a year so, that becomes a market that is shrinking in some sense uh, as a percentage of overall world trade. And the best future trade opportunities for the UK and for other European nations, uh, looking out 10 or 20 years, lie outside of Europe. They're the BRIC countries and the developing nations of the world uh, and so forth. And yet, under EU rules, the UK cannot sign its own free trade agreements with other nations. It has to be part of an EU uh, trade agreement. And then the last thing is, At the end of the day, if it's true that the UK is able to negotiate a free trade agreement with the EU, if it can negotiate a a proper agreement, and it's certainly in the interest of all parties to do that, then it's not losing much, uh, uh, the Brexiters, the pro-Brexiters might uh, argue. And for example, Norway and Switzerland are both outside the EU and their economies are doing uh, just fine, have good trading relationships with the rest of Europe uh, uh, and so forth. Now, uh, I've searched far and wide for credible folks that I could point to that would back me up here and agree with uh, my opinion. And, and, and this is honest. I've, I couldn't find any credible ones, but I did find—well, I shouldn't say that. Uh, well, I've already said it. Uh, but I did find three people who do agree with me on this. Uh, one well, there's, is, there's Bojo. Before, One is Elizabeth Hurley, actress, uh, British actress and former girlfriend of Hugh Grant. One is Ringo Starr, who needs no introduction. And the third is President Donald Trump. Um, But uh, I would, I guess I'd leave with uh, this comment uh, that, and there are lots of plenty very cogent persuasive arguments as to why Brexit is very bad for the UK, and certainly for Europe. But just to summarize one, uh, just to mention one that sort of summarizes the gist of all of them, it goes, and this is from some satirist uh, in England, if it ain't broke, don't Brexit.
2: (laughs) It ain't broke, don't Brexit. Hey, I have a question about uh, the UK. So there, there are four theoretically sovereign parts to the United Kingdom, right? You've got Northern Ireland, Wales, Scotland and England. Um, if this thing they're, they're, not,
0: co- they're not completely so- they're not sovereign states they're the states in some fashion.
2: Yes, you're right, I stand corrected. They're, they have to have a common thing in common like a queen and uh, parliaments and things of that sort. But will this if it is are the Scots in particular going to be interested in maybe you know heck with it, I, we don't need to be part of the UK. We're going to become independent and do our own thing.
1: Well, in the referendum, it's interesting, in the referendum, the Welsh and the English were overwhelming, not overwhelming, but solid majority voters for Brexit. And the Scots and the Northern Ireland were were a solid majority against leaving the EU. And certainly one of the downside uh, risks that the UK is running is that this, that this uh, Brexit will cause the Scots to uh, reinvigorate their secession uh, efforts from three, four, five years ago. Yeah. And this time it may be very much in their economic interest to do that. So, good point.
0: Well,
2: uh, good summary, break.
0: Ta- taking up your, your three points that Ringo and, and Mr. Trump uh, <laughs> agree, agree with you on, uh, I, I think in my opinion, in my view, what it looked like to me was that the uh, that London was perfectly satisfied with the trading arrangement with the rest of their EU partners, but it was driven primarily by this nationalistic uh, drumbeat uh, that uh, stemmed from immigration. You know, we, we've had open borders in uh, the EU countries, and were a lot of um, uh, uh, immig- they weren't immigrants. They were, they were labor from Poland and, and other newly uh, acquired EU uh, nationalities that uh, Italy and Spain and others that were flooding the, uh, the uh, British job market. And after the uh, 2008 global recession, uh, people in the UK looked around and said, hey, you know, uh, these industries that we had that uh, British young men and women could grow up and and get jobs in are now being taken over by Poles and Spaniards and Italians and Greeks and so forth. Uh, And then there was the uh, the influx of uh, refugees and after the Arab Spring into Europe and and uh, the British did their best to hold off some of those, but there were flotillas of refugees. So it became a very public uh, issue. And uh, there was a lot of stirring going on in the UK about doing something about it. And, and uh, to be fair, there there were concerns about the overreach of the uh, European Parliament into British affairs. Uh, but uh, David Cameron, when he called the referendum, believed that it would be roundly defeated. Um, be careful what you wish for, you, you just might get it. It turns <laughs> out that uh, now Farage and... Um, I think uh, Boris Johnson at, at the end uh, got on board the, uh, the bus there, literally on the bus. They were riding around in a bus with the NIH, the uh, National Institute of Health, um, banners on the buses and really made a big publicity stunt out of, out of the whole bit. Um, but I think at its core, Brexit stemmed from, as, as you mentioned, uh, Breck, the, the immigration piece and the economics so it was just uh, kind of a, a tag-along.
2: So I I I have a question about what happens if if basically the border stays open between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, um, can basically Northern Ireland just send stuff down into into the Republic of Ireland and then it off it goes to be sold in Poland and uh, you know or you know, what what's going to happen. Are they going to well, put out in the Irish Sea, are they going to intercept anything leaving the going towards Europe kind of thing?
0: Yeah, I, as Brick mentioned, uh, mentioned um, that seems to be the, the most highly publicized issue because that was for a long time, and, and this is Theresa May on the right, the Prime Minister who, uh, after Cameron uh, left post-referendum, she she tried to pick up the pieces. But the main deal was called the backstop. And, and as you mentioned, it was designed to keep uh, the border open between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And that, that's complicated by the, uh, the troubles, of the Irish Republican army battles with uh, um, the Ulster uh, Loyalists, uh, you know, this, this incipient war going back and forth for decades. That was resolved, and part of the, that resolution was mm-hmm. this border, uh, which facilitated trade. And the UK acknowledged that, and they developed this um, uh, recipe, as, as Breck said, where goods would be inspected because there there needed to be some division between the United Kingdom and the EU post-Brexit. And the idea was that the Irish Sea would be the, the boundary between the two. And now this new legislation introduced this week, um, by the British government seems to be crashing that deal. So I, I think that's, that's what's leading to the uh, potential of, uh, as, as Breck called it, a hard Brexit. Uh, we're running long on time here, but let me mention one more component. You know, uh, Breck, you gave yep. a, a great uh, overview of how the e- EU uh, came to be out of the uh, EEC, et cetera. Uh, but there are a couple of other treaties that uh, went into effect that impact a lot of this conversation. One of them is the Schengen Agreement, um, which Schengen is old town in Luxembourg. And, and in 1985, the, uh, the Schengen countries and not all of the EU countries are in the Schengen Agreement. But the Schengen Agreement basically opened the borders, uh, literally opened the borders between countries. And uh, you guys are probably driven around Europe. You, you get to the border between the Netherlands and, and Belgium and, and there's a little blue sign with stars on it and it says Belgium. Uh, And that's the only way you know that you've just left one country and uh, entered another. Uh, I mean, the signage is, uh, if you drive from Texas into New Mexico, there's a gigantic sign and there's no mistaking you're now in a different state. But in Europe, you drive across borders and it's just, you know, fuzzy. Uh, so it, it'll be interesting to see what happens between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland yeah. now that now that London is, Greg, uh, uh, would you say they're reneging on the deal?
1: Well, I guess I'd say it's too early to tell, but rumors are that that might be happening. Uh, I guess we'll know in the next uh, day or two. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think that'll, that'll cause a brouhaha for sure.
2: Yeah, I remember about, about a year and a half ago, like, I, I, went from Paris to Hamburg. And as we got, we got to the border and the train just kept, I guess it stopped and, and a guy got on and he kind of walked down the aisle and looked at people. <laughs> so maybe it's you know, racial profiling or whatever it is here, but you know, it, you know nobody asked for the passport. Nobody, you know, you're just going on your own. As you say, the borders are open.
0: Quick story from back in the day when I was stationed in uh, Naples, Italy at a submarine headquarters. The last visit of the U.S.'s Nautilus to the Mediterranean, that's how long ago this was, uh, a young sailor uh, took leave in Europe and he traveled around. And back in the day, you could uh, use your, your uh, leave papers and your military ID card to get uh, from one country to another. And he was on a train in uh, in Germany and he wanted to go visit Berlin. And he, did, he didn't realize that it was surrounded by East Germany, which uh, was not a... <laughs> not a NATO country, and he got to the border and a Soviet guard pulled him off the train and they held on to him. Uh, he was a reactor raider on the, on the Nautilus. Uh, so they uh, hung on to him for a couple of weeks and, and nobody knew what had happened to him. And then he turned up at uh, Checkpoint Charlie in Berlin. Uh,
2: so it you know, so wasn't a guy named Ryan, was it? no, 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 no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I've, done some, uh, I've done we, many... we, we used to play all those games, Pat. I mean, when I, when I would go from West Germany to Berlin, you know, you'd get to the border and the Volkos, the East German you know, security police guys would stop you and, and you would leave your windows up, show them the outside cover of your passport and, and he would just sort of wave you through and then you'd stop again and a Soviet soldier or customs guy would come out and actually, you know, log you in and send you on your way. So we we did not recognize the uh, juridical status of the East German authorities.
0: And and now you just kind of go all over the place at at will. But we'll see if there's going to be a border between uh, Northern Ireland and and, uh, the Republic. Interesting uh, developments. Well, gentlemen, um, a terrific news review. I think we've uh, shine shown the light on uh, a few issues here. The UN General Assembly is opening up, and we know more about that. Uh, we're we're uh, more conscious that uh, China is expanding its military reach. And uh, thanks to Breck, we, we now have an idea of what's going on with uh, Brexit. And, and I'll, I'll come down on the side of uh, ad nauseum. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so. So let's uh, let's close it out. We have uh, we have our uh, question of the week uh, answer and uh, Breck. If you uh, you mastered the, the no sure Can sure no, the, the answer? Uh,
1: answer to our question about which uh, Saudi Arabian was murdered that uh, they had the sentencing of the culprits uh, or the alleged culprits uh, uh, this week uh, the answer is B Jamal Khashoggi and uh, and Pat if you don't mind me just saying very quickly. Uh, Ringo, my new affiliation with Ringo Starr reminds me of the story (laughs) that uh, uh, John Lennon, and one of the greatest put downs of all time, John Lennon was asked one time by a reporter, is Ringo Starr the best drummer in the world? And John Lennon replied, he's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, quick footnote for me, the Bellcourt Theater, which is, you know, the artsy-fartsy theater here in Nashville that shows all these good things, you, you really, uh, they had a hard time because of COVID, so they have turned their parking lot into a oh, yeah. drive-in theater, and so last Saturday night, my wife Kay and I got in our car and drove, and the reason I'm mentioning this is the movie was The yellow submarine. So, all right. All right. We'll see you next
1: Uh,
2: week, guys. One last plug
0: plug here. Again, let me remind everybody that uh, we're always open for uh, people to become members. We encourage you to uh, become a member or make a gift to the World Affairs Council. Uh, That's how we uh, keep things uh, moving along. And just a reminder anybody becomes a member or renews or makes a gift of $100 this week. Uh, They'll be in the drawing for a copy of uh, Dr. Thomas Schwartz's great new book, Henry Kissinger and American Power. So look for that. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you very much. As always, uh, another another great uh, Wednesday afternoon and we'll be back next week. Again, uh, take a look at election 2020 uh, tomorrow night. China. Uh, Dr. Susan Haynes will have a great panel. And don't miss that. That's it for us. And we will see uh, everyone next week.